Hi, welcome. Um, thank you very much for coming. I feel like I selfishly put on today because it's a, a group of papers that I felt would stimulate my own thinking, um, particularly through um, some research that I recently completed and now really trying to think more deeply about what that means and what the implications are. So I'm so glad that other people were interested too. Um, this paper, well, presentation really, is going to be um, a presentation of two halves. So I want, while I'm speaking, I want you to join me um, very much like you were part of the research team. I'm going to present you with some data um, and I want you to be thinking, so when I present, probably I'll have time to present four students' stories or narratives for graduating students who are from um, non-traditional widening participation backgrounds. I want you to keep the title in mind when I show you their stories. Um, and I want you to be thinking about, well, it's a question really. Do you think the student finance, student debt seems to be influencing um, the choices that they're making, the decisions that they're making about what they do after graduation. So that's my role in this, is I'm going to share some of this data with you. And then Colin's role is going to be to present, um, in fact, sorry, before I say that, let me tell you about how me and Colin working together has come about. Um, so Colin and I have known of each other and of our work for a while. Yeah. Um, and I invited Colin to be a respondent at um, a symposium late late last year and Colin how do I put this politely Colin challenged me on um on what I thought was going on with some of the data which is why I want you to I'm going to present it and see what you think and then Colin presented at the time what was quite a, what quite challenging um to my thinking about what was going on um and we then followed that up with a sort of in-depth private conversation and what we decided was we'd have a go today don't know how this will go we'd have a go today at making that private conversation public with you so that we can get some other people's views on where we've got to really is that fair yeah yeah go on then yeah exactly um <laughs> no not at all no we, we know it no we know it's a little bit risky yeah, yeah. don't we? we it feels personally risky to both of us but we, we're interested in what you think um, so yeah, the other thing I need to just mention before I show you the student stories is that um, the stories I'm presenting uh, come from the Research Informed comic that we produced as part of um, the project, SRHE funded project. I'm looking at some of your faces, I know that I've sent some of you these through the post. Um, I've brought copies with me so if you'd like to take some it goes into more detail than what I'm going to present today, um, so please do take those at the end. So what I need to give you is a little bit of context about the project um, that we recently completed. So this is myself from Staffordshire University um, and two colleagues from Manchester University, uh, Stephen Jones and Diane Harris. So what we did was we conducted 92 interviews in two institutions, so a Russell Group institution in the Midlands and a post-92 institution in the Midlands. Um, we interviewed half of those students in 2014, so these were 
people who were graduating in 2014 and they had um, paid lower fees. They were the last generation of students to pay more like £3,000 per year. Um, we then conducted the same research with similar types of students, same courses, same gender, um, same social economic backgrounds the year after. Um, where that was the first generation of students to pay the higher fees, so the first graduating students to have paid the higher fees and to therefore have higher debt. Um, things you need to bear in mind is that we only interviewed full-time students, um, so the, the stories that you see, those students will be 20, 21, 22. Um, the four that I've selected for you today are from um, non-traditional backgrounds. Um, I'll say something about uh, how we um, define that in a moment. Um, yeah, so I'm gonna show you some data, then we'll have an alternative um, analysis. And, and really, before, so before I show you the data, um, I also, I just want to remind myself and all of us that you don't need to go and um, interview 92 graduates to get a sense of um, what it feels like to have student debt. And for those of you that don't know Loyal Karner, who is a confessional hip-hop artist, um, I have to say, I have a 16-year-old son, that's the only reason. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a big fan, I'm going to see him in June. But, um, but I was in the car with my son, and there was a hip-hop artist playing through the car. And I was like, Jack, this is about student debt. This is about precarious futures. He didn't care very much about that. But I then said, who is this? Because I need to look this up a little bit and see what's going on. And I, th I, do, I recommend that you Google Loyal Karna Ain't Nothing Changed and watch the YouTube video. Um, and maybe even read his Wikipedia entry for Loyal Karna's uh, life and background. Um, I've come to this quite late, but I think he gives a, uh, well, he's putting into the public realm what it actually feels like. Um, and, and this, you know, in, these are some of the lyrics. This is how the, uh, the song starts, the rap. Um, and it's that dichotomy between the security that being a student gives you with the, uh, the, this bottom bit here. You know, he ends with where he's now at between the struggle and the strain. Uh, the, the paper chase, the stress, the concern. Um, and, and this is something that I saw in not all of the 92 interviews, but lots of them, whether they paid the lower fees or the higher fees. So it's, it's just to provide a little bit of wider context, really. So to begin with then, I'm sure you're all very familiar with this, um, but I just want to um, talk you through some of the changes to the student finance system. Um, oh, and I should also mention the, the comic book. Um, I employed um, some of Staffordshire University's final year art, uh, comic arts graduates. So you'll see four different artists' representations here. So, okay, so here we've got Fliss and Siobhan at the top. Um, they went to the same university, they did the same course, they're from the same social background. Um, one graduated in 2014 and one graduated in tw 2015. Siobhan, who graduated in the latter year, um, leaves university with £20,000 more debt than um, Fliss. And so this was due to, in 2012, um, the trebling of fees. We know that that is, it's 
we, we don't quite know what's happening with these. They're probably going to rise again in the future. Um, so the majority of graduates um, have had to get loans from a student loan company to cover their tuition fees. So we're here today thinking particularly about non-traditional students, widening participation students. So up until recently, and I think this is right, isn't it? Up until recently, um, if your family earned £25,000 a year or less, you were eligible to get a maintenance grant for £3,000 a year. So actually the students that I present to you, they all were eligible for that. So they all got uh, £3,000 per year that they didn't have to pay back. I don't think that exists now. I think it's now the main an extended maintenance loan. So maybe that's something we want to think about. The students that I present to you, what might their stories have been if they, the maintenance grants didn't exist? Because I think it would, you'll see it would definitely have affected Francesca's story, for example. Um, so on top of this, uh, most students will, as you know, even if they get the grant or had got the grant, they would still have to take out a maintenance loan, approximately £5,000 a year on top of the tuition fees loan. Um, and yeah, and then here we get the difference between so the graduates of 2014 under the 2006 student finance scheme they have to start repaying their loan when they earn just over £15,000 a year um, so that's what Fliss would have to do Siobhan uh, as a 2015 graduate doesn't need to start paying money back until um, she's paying, uh, earning £21,000, so the, um, the repayment terms are higher. Is that right? Do I mean that? You know what I mean? You, you have to earn more now before you start paying it back. Um, and Crawford and Yin, or Jin, from um, the IFS, they wrote uh, an interesting paper about what the implications of the, the new student finance um, system might mean and they put forward that actually this new system so the higher fees the the changed repayment terms um, that's better for uh, potentially widening participation students who might not uh, go into well-paid jobs so um, it suggests that they either don't start paying that back until much later in their career and therefore may never have to pay the loan off and that's just something I want you to hold in mind as we look at their sto the stories of some, some of the students that refers to um, and then I think this is just sobering uh, the Crawford and Jim uh, report suggests that the 2014 graduates 50% uh, will have paid off their student loans by the time they're 40 and only 5% of 2015 and beyond graduates will have done that so this is long this is long term stuff. Um, okay. Yeah, so I'm personally particularly interested in um, the decision making of graduate students from non traditional higher education backgrounds and what, what it looks like in this this context. And for the project uh, we defined um, students as non-traditional I don't like the term but that's what's common um, where first in their family to go to university um, accessed the maintenance grant and also a bursary from their institution so 
I'm running for time. Have I done like 15 minutes already? <laughs> You've nearly done 15 minutes. Bugger. Right. Okay. Well. And I'm being recorded. So um, I just want to I just want to point out a couple of things. That right. This is a table based on um, all 92. Hello, Nicola. You slipped in there. Um, and so I just want you to pay attention to the the top row which is how many students were able to save money while they were at university, how many gained professional work experience, how many said they experienced graduate job anxiety, how many had secured a graduate job uh, before they've graduated, how many were actively seeking a non-graduate job on graduating, and how many said they were applying for postgraduate study straight after graduation. And I'm not going to go through it, I mean we've got, we've got WP group here at the um, post 92, you've got your WP here at the Russell group, we won't look too much at that although I do think that's interesting, these are non-WP students but um, there is a huge difference between the WP students at the post 92 institution and those at the Russell group. In fact, if you were to spend some time looking at this table as a whole, the Russell Group WP students have the look to have the best outcomes. Can't go into that in more detail now, but um, that's what we're currently writing about. So let's have a look at some of these students then. Well, maybe we'll only have time for two. Um, right, this is Claudia. So Claudia is um, a third year law honours student at a post 92 university. Um, and let's just have a look at what she says. So she says, um, I think university helps prepare you for the working world. However, I'm not sure what career path I want to take. Um, I think I need to study a postgraduate qualification if I want to be a solicitor, but I need to wait until I've saved enough money. So I'll get a non-graduate job when I leave uni. It will also give me time and space to think about my future. I'm really worried about getting a graduate job. I'm not sure there are enough jobs out there. So I think some of the stuff that Rob presented, students are experiencing that, feeling that. Um, and then she says, and this seems like a contradiction, I'm not too worried about my student debt, but I do want to pay my loan off as soon as possible. Money plays a huge part in my decision making. That's why I'm taking a couple of years out to save. Coming from a poor background, my family can't help support me. So earning money after graduation is a necessity, not a choice. Um, is that 15 minutes? I maybe I'll need to leave that there. So that can't, we can always go back, can't we, to some of them. But my concern with Claudia, so if I just show you, we've got Tyra here, who's at a Russell Group University, um, who's done optometry, you know, so another vocational sort of subject, but that goes into a higher, you know, when Tyra graduates, she'll have to start paying her student loan back straight away. Um, Tyra also wants to say, she's saying she wants to pay her loan off as soon as possible, wants to save money to do that. My thinking on that is that's probably a good thing to think in Tyra's case, but in Claudia's, that, that desire or that urgency, that feel the need to not be in debt actually is um, shaping and influencing what she thinks she can and can't do. And I think that's what I want us to think about is 
um, how is debt either explicitly or implicitly shaping people's graduate futures, particularly those from widening participation backgrounds? So apologies for, don't quite know how I managed to fill 15 minutes, that's <laughs> a problem of mine. Um, so I'm going to hand over to, look at these lovely drawings. I'm going to hand over to, I know, I'm so sorry, Colin, to read. the comic. Yeah, take the comic. So I suppose, yeah, like I say, as uh, Katie says, come about as a bit of a conversation about me thinking when I read the uh, papers for the the um, Vera um, symposium, it was like it's really interesting. It's kind of snapshot interview data of these group of people, and they almost exhibited the kind of responses that you'd think. And it made me think, well, maybe why why do people think this? What's the is is there reality behind it? Well, have, have people already been um, have been adversely affected by uh, what's out there in the culture. So I thought I'd look into, into more of that. Um, so the major theme, just to go through uh, what we'd seen if, um, you know, if we'd looked at all six of the cases that's on the slide. Post-92 is associated with more anxiety about future debt. People from WP background, whether they're at the Rust Group or post-92 is more anxiety. Uh, post-92 and WP students less likely to enter post-grad study. That was quite a big Part of it wasn't it the people that felt they had to go out and get a job didn't really have time to sit around uh, and people from wp backgrounds uh, this need to enter the labor market there was less they were less able to rely on the bank of mum and dad and that was one of the key things how do you do it okay so how does this um play out in our in relation to understanding of social capital there's a few things that there's assumptions that we can talk about uh, we assume people from disadvantaged backgrounds get less from higher education interesting rob's papers sort of um, play quite heavily on that. We also assume that they're going to have greater fear of debt than more advantaged students. And that might that might seem a, a relatively uncontested content, uh, concept. <laughs> um, and we assume those graduating from post-1992s are going to get less out of their higher education. There's a few things we know. We know they're less likely to go on to TG study and Sally is going to be talking about in our final paper today. Uh, and we obviously know that they've, they've definitely got less money to fall back on. That can't be fudged. But some of the other stuff is attitudinal. Attitudes, attitudes towards debt. There's a really interesting paper by Harrison and Agnew. Neil Harrison down, uh, down at uh, UWE and Steve Agnew is based in New Zealand. did a comparative paper looking about... Uh, they've both got income t contingent <coughs> repayment systems. Um, in England, because... As Kate was saying, that this new repayment scheme is actually over a longer time. It's a relatively shallow uh, repayment scheme. A higher threshold, so you don't start paying until higher. You've got longer to pay it over. And New Zealand's the other way around. They're, they're relatively... Uh, you have to pay out much quicker. But they actually have lower debt. They take on less debt in New Zealand, in the New Zealand system, than, than we do in England. But actually, looking at students in the, in the two institutions where they, they did this, and it was a sort of behavioural attitudes type survey, in England, there was actually less anxiety about debt, not more, even though there was higher debt. So there's, there's something to think about. But because their research is basically around about behavioural psychology, a lot of question, there are other questions in there about anxiety per se, not just about anxiety, anxiety associated to student debt. And, and basically they come to the conclusion that anxious personalities are the ones that are most anxious about debt. So if you're anxious about everything else, you're anxious about student debt. If you're not anxious about stuff, you're not that anxious about the debt, surprisingly enough. Women, and this is not me saying, so don't shoot me, women are more likely to be anxious. 
but also women are more likely to attend higher education. So is the anxiety that big a, is it a deal breaker? In fact, Sir Harrison Agnew's main conclusion, working classes, in fact, no more anxious than the middle class about debt. There's no systematic socioeconomic basis for student debt attitudes. And some of the literature they cited in the paper as well is more or less backed up the same kind of thinking. Fear of debt has got nothing to do with the size of debt. And you think about it, who fears crime the most? Little old ladies. Who, who gets the most crime against them? Young male. Who, who is most scared of immigrants? People in areas where there's no immigrants. Who is the most likely to vote Brexit? People in areas where there is not a lot of job displacement created by um, um, potentially uh, foreign workers working, taking UK jobs. So there's a kind of irrationality about fear. It doesn't necessarily correlate to the material reality. The other thing, Walker and Zoo's paper found more affluent students tend to be uh, more debt conscious. So this, uh, Claire Kander wrote a very influential paper about 10, 11 years ago that said that working classes are going to fear debt and therefore they stop coming to higher education. And it was very influential, partly because it's Claire Callender, uh, partly because at the time of the new tuition fees everyone thought, oh my god, working classes aren't going to come to do HE anymore because they're scared of debt. Subsequent research doesn't seem to bear that out. Most people, um, people have either got used to the idea of debt, uh, taken on board like the um, Essen and Ertel thing, they just see it as a necessary evil, but it doesn't seem to have put most people off, so it didn't actually stop people going into higher education. Now maybe as Rob said earlier on, there's an awareness of a lack of other alternative routes. But attitudes with debt is not as straightforward as we might be led to assume. Let's start me thinking about social mobility. Because I'm not a sociologist. I'm glad Rob started by saying he's not a HE researcher. I am a HE researcher, but I'm a HE I come at it from a political science perspective. I'm looking at it from a point of view of policy. So all this stuff, this Bordeauxian notions of social and mobility and cap cultural all this stuff, it's kind of came to me a bit late and I I come to it with a different angle. And I really want to know why. Who is selling me this agenda? Why do the elites use uh, a certain agenda about what and what what is and isn't social mobility why are they telling me what what i'm supposed to believe is it born out in the in the, in the uh, material reality <clears throat> so the assumption is the story is um people that post 92s and working class students are least likely to be mobile and the only the only social mobility you hear about in policy terms is these super bright young kids get polished like diamonds in the dirt they're sent by the Sutton Trust onto um, summer schools, so they're ready for the Russell Group, so the Russell Group can more easily get these people with A-star, AAA, and then get there and keep up their uh, scoring highly on the league tables for high, highly qualified graduates. And this is the kind of agenda that's been around since uh, Sutton Trust, 3000, uh, missing, three, missing 3000 in 2004. It's all over the um, Social Mobility Commission report. Um, the Alan Milburn report. It's all over students at the art system. It's all about getting the bright kids from the wrong type of universities into the Rust Group University. It's all about separating out the people that they assume are in the wrong places. For whatever reason, some people weren't going to the best university. Now, there is, a, there is another agenda going on about why government wants to do this, and it's about 
it's about the rate of tuition fee because all tuition fees were high and the average tuition fee came in much higher than government anticipated when they set up the new scheme they worked at 7,500 so students at heart the system includes incentives for people to who can't get highly qualified students to lower their fees and they try to create a system the AAB system where all the high, more highly graded students on the UCAS tariff will go just to a few universities so they're trying to create a system where there's a distribution of fees that's what it's all about from government's perspective so that's but that's social mobility that's that's the social mobility we hear about but there's actually 700,000 students coming into the system every year not just the missing 3,000 who go the wrong one and, and a good 30% of them most years actually come from the lowest two polar quintiles don't they what they call the low participation neighborhoods at 20% from uh, quintile 1, 30% altogether. So that's an awful lot of students. And what do they do when they come out of the system? Well, they have you know, an average graduate starting salary of 22,000, according to the destination leavers. The average salary, well, look, this is a, an off quoted figure, 26,000 national average, but that's actually, if you took London and the South East out of that, it's actually 18,000. Might be an even less than Teesside, it probably. Slightly less than that in Sheffield, where I come from. Probably less than that in Stoke, uh, where Kate is. So already, the average graduate earns more than the average salary. Already. So if you're not doing a degree, I mean, before I come into higher education, I was a forklift driver for about 15 years. It's interesting when you're talking about an apprenticeship in warehousing. I worked in warehousing for about 15 years, and it wouldn't take eight weeks to. Uh, you're right. It wouldn't take eight weeks to get the hang of it. And the last time, the last year, I worked full time. It was on about, about 10,000 a year. And I've checked, and the same job now would be about 14,000. 14, in other words, minimum wage. Minimum wage job. That's what a lot of people would be on if they didn't do a degree. So, is there any social mobility going on here? I would say that people from the poorest background gets, gets the greater upward social mobility. It's, it's absolutely transformational. If you're on a trajectory, or you're going to be on a minimum wage job, shelf stacking, call centre work, or you do a degree, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Ironically, though, for, the, for me now, I'm a reader, maybe one day I'll be a professor. You know what that means in terms of income. If my children don't earn that, what am I going to do? If my, you know, if my children only achieve 35, 40,000 pound jobs. Is that down with social mobility? Am I going to sneer at them? For, am I going to call them failures? Lower social mobility? Because that's what it implies. If we take this Bourdieuian notion of the intergenerational impact of uh, capital, these people are going less than me. My kids potentially are less than me. So we don't talk about social mobility flatlining, do we? If a, a surgeon's children only equally become surgeons, there's no social mobility there. They're flatlining. The only people that's really socially mobile are the working class people who go to box down at ex-polis and um, get degrees in various things and they end up earning well above. But their starting salary is 22,000. So, again, social mobility pictures are a bit different as well, isn't it? So what do we think we know? <clears throat> Worse outcomes, fair enough. Uh, more fear it shouldn't be in HE in the first place. Yes, there is an agenda. There is an agenda that thinks that there shouldn't be more than 30 or 40 universities and there shouldn't be more than 
10,000 people going to university. They won't be able to cheat, they won't be able to pay off their debts, they'll be worried. Oh, they're going to lose their culture. I mean, it's only the working classes that have to worry about losing the culture. And of course, they're going to, they're going to drop out. <clears throat> and here's a quote which more or less captures that, that narrative um, from Harris et al. Uh, you can see what it says. They've got, they overcome these problems, these working class people. Uh, they want something different. They, uh, they want to change their stars. An implication there was something wrong with their parents. I'm not sure uh, working class people are the only ones who think there's something wrong with their parents, but equally, they probably don't think there's something wrong with their parents. And as a parent, I want my kid to do better than me. I want my kids to do better than me. And I bet all of you do too as well. So, but this, this othering, Skelton and Francis, this othering of these strange, weird people that shouldn't really be in the system. And they feel so bad that they've lost their culture. They're the only people in the world who have to move away from the kids they grew up with, apparently. Middle classes don't have to do that. But some of them actually drop out. So what happens when they drop out? Do they actually fall off? They don't. Not that bad anyway. So Schnepf did a, a really interesting 15 country comparative analysis. Uh, using propensity scoring mechanisms, so that kind of controls out for other factors. Um, but before we go on to that, some of the other literature, Davis and Elias from uh, Warwick, half of dropouts actually go on to graduate track employment and salary scale. So the fact of going to university, and if you don't complete, you don't succeed, um, is actually still has good labour and market outcomes. Um, dropping out is a better predictor of job entry than those not starting according to a um, comparative study by Makovic and Kogan, looking at Serbian and, and uh, Croatian graduates. And Tieben's German study showed 80% of German dropouts actually go on to achieve relatively high level labour market positions. So these are failures, in our words, in our turn. These are these poor working class people who have left their tiny little communities and never spoke to their, their parents again. <laughs> poor, it was poor. Well, nobody cries from the middle class children have to leave their culture as well. Um, okay, so um, Turf Snaps. So that's quite interesting that one third of dropouts actually re enroll later. And my son actually did that. He dropped out at the age of 20 and he's just completed a degree as a mature student. But among the permanent dropouts, they're not these, they're not the Skelton and Francis failures. They're actually people who have got parents who have, have got tertiary education. And that's a pretty rare crew. They actually have got parents who are graduate. But perhaps they've, perhaps they've got other things they need to do and the degree isn't all that important to them. Perhaps they're only doing it because, you know, it's a rite of passage, isn't it? Rock whip that scarf around your neck, travel to university 200 miles from home, bring your washing home, Christmas and Easter, that. Perhaps they're part of that. But they, they will drop, the one, they're the ones that drop out. Um, and uh, yeah, the other thing was that overall dropouts actually still 10% uh, more chance and others uh, who never involved to actually end up in those kinds of jobs. One minute, okay. First in families is another one that I want to have a look at. There's still the largest group of all the students that, and again, going back to Bourdieu, there's supposed to be this intergenerational almost osmosis in there. You know, I know how to apply for university because my dad applied for university 25, 35 years ago. Never, never, because I'm not a sociologist. I've never really understood how that's supposed to work. So that's what people mean by social and cultural capital and this re reproduction of the elite. Um, but if you look at it, the parents of graduates now, they're going to be in their late 50s because the average age of 
people, especially graduates who have kids, it's got to be, you know, late 30s. We don't really have that many kids. And yet, the majority of the 700,000 who come into the system every year, they come from, the majority of them, two-thirds, come from these social classes, one to three, and that should be polar quintile, so not the low-participation neighbours, the ones that's high-participation. See, these aren't, these aren't not the other group. These are the, the, the advantaged. But most of them are actually first in family. So this notion of first in family, which again, it all comes back from this Bourdieu notion that this is cultural knowledge that you pick up from your, your dad and your granddad. It doesn't exist for these people. And yet they're advantaged. They can buy extra coaching for their parents if they could. I'd do it for my kids, you know. Um, violin lessons, the, the, the additional animal coach, all those things can be afforded by these people, but they're still first in families. So they've got no knowledge of the system to impart. And actually, most of them end up in uh, post 92s because they don't necessarily get the UCAS points to go to the Rush Group anyway, but they are advantaged. But the point I'm really making is this is, a, this is financial, this is economic capital, this isn't social capital, this isn't cultural capital. That's just a bit of, that's just a bit of cultural flim plan. A bit of intellectual, you know, dead French sociologist intellectual window dressing for the fact that the rich do better than the poor. And I don't think, you know, anyone didn't know that already, did they? So it's just another case of income inequality, and I think it's slightly worrying when you keep, see this agenda gets pushed by Russia Group, gets pushed by government, gets <coughs> well promoted, this kind of stuff, isn't it? And Bourdieu might be a good left-leaning French sociologist who's thinking originate with Marx. But you've got to start wondering, from a policy point of view, when his stuff constantly gets cited and reiterated and reused in the, in the I wouldn't say the interest of, but it kind of reinforces this idea that there are these other people who shouldn't be there, who have crap outcomes and are terrified of the debt and we're doing them a terrible disservice because they... They can't talk to their mates that they grew up with. Okay, so yeah, I think. Okay, thank you very much.